Hello everyone, it's me, Tim Clare, and of course this is another episode of Death of a Thousand Cuts and I'm just recording a little intro at midnight, uh, having just edited the episode with me chatting to the author Jess Kidd. I wish somebody had told me about Jess beforehand, they probably did, and I'm just, just too fucking blasé to listen to them, but um, one of the nice things about this podcast recording chats with authors is that I have to go and read their stuff, otherwise I would have no idea what to ask them. And it means I'm kind of forced to read in a way that I wouldn't naturally do. I read, pick up books that I wouldn't necessarily have picked up just because I... <laughs> just because I, I just read whatever comes into my field of vision and I, I, I'm not very adventurous. And, um, I... And I had that with when I was reading Lauren Groff last year that I, I read her collection, the short story collection, Florida. And it wasn't because it, it you know, obviously didn't uh, appeal to me in some way. Just I don't, I'm not sure I would have come across it. And I read it and was like, holy shit, this is really good. Um, and the same thing happened with Jess Kidd. I've been reading her stuff and I've been like, oh, fuck, I love this. Oh my god, this is what I want to be reading. This is for me. This is awesome. Um and we talk about uh, her three novels starting off with her novel himself. I we will get into it so I don't need to give you a pricey of what we talk about. She talks about what each of them are about and how she came to write about them, but just suffice to say she writes with incredible skill but also with a kind of weird twist and that's just that just hits all the things that I, I, I want to get hit. So I, I was well, well, well excited to chat to her. And I think probably a little bit shy as well because I'd been reading her books and then you get to chat to the person who wrote them. And so I was a little bit, I don't want to sound like I'm being a lovey or anything, but like I think at the beginning of the interview you'll hear, I was a teensy bit starstruck. And, uh, but she was so nice that we kind of got past that and just ended up talking about writing. And there's loads of great stuff in there for you to reflect on and hear. I just think it's really useful to hear. As always, you know, like I tried to give, put an accent on craft and lessons that you can take away. So that's what I've tried to do with this one. And we nerd out, uh, we geek out about craft. And um, I really, really enjoyed chatting to her and learned a great deal. Before um, I play you our chat just to say um this had this podcast it doesn't um occasionally i mean occasionally we've had people advertising on it but uh, uh, generally it's supported by you uh the listeners um in in two clear ways one of which i've got a coffee page um that's ko-fi.com forward slash tim claire i'll put a link in the show notes if you'd like to drop me a few quid to help me keep the lights on because it costs me I spend a lot of time making the show at the moment. Um, I have to edit it. I have to record it. Uh, the last two weeks, I have been doing interviews almost every day of the week, recording interviews with various different people. Uh, got to get in touch with people and try and hunt down people who I think are going to be interesting, who you'll enjoy um, hearing from and who you'll learn from. Uh, that all costs me money and a lot of time. Um, and so anything you can uh, chuck my way to help me pay my hosting costs to pay the cost for the 
for hosting my website. Um, I really appreciate and thank you to those of you who've done that because it just um, helps me, literally helps me keep the lights on. That's not just a metaphor. Um, so thanks. The other really, really helpful way that you can help me is that I am a full-time author and my second novel, The Ice House, is due out on May the 2nd from Canongate Books. And one of the most wonderful things you can do for an author is to pre-order their book, which means you get it the moment it comes out, but also all those pre-sales go into their first week of sales and their publisher sees that people are interested in the book and booksellers see that people are interested in the book and it basically is like taking your one book purchase and pumping it full of steroids and um, letting it loose in the city sewers to breed. Um, there's no real reason why steroids would be passed on genetically. I don't know if anything they'd probably risk making the creature in this metaphor sterile but um just put it on my understanding of uh, of gene expression aside for a moment and uh, consider uh, pre-ordering a copy of the honors i just want to say so you so some of you who've been listening for a while will know um i talked about if i could get 1500 pre-orders um, from the listeners, which would be about a quarter of the people who listen to this podcast weekly, then it will get on the Sunday Times bestseller list in the UK in its first week. That's what I'm going for, uh, because it would be awesome, just for pure avarice, really. Like I, I, I would love. To, I've been thinking for a while, like how I could frame this as like a, a, a noble quest, because nobody really questions sort of doing something. Um, for altruism but really it's purely for me so i can spend the rest of my so so i can feed my daughter uh, but, so i can spend the rest of my clear my career saying that i'm a sunday times best-selling author tim clare i would love that there's no, there's no reason for you to be hugely invested in that as a mission and yet some of you are so kind um i sound like sound like the elephant man now don't i you're so kind thank you um but you are really really kind and um i've just seemed to be invested in it anyway because you're just lovely people and because i suppose i strike occasionally such a pathetic figure and because as, as many of you know i have a anxiety disorder tr tr triggered by disapproval um that you feel a responsibility to make sure that I'm not disappointed uh, come the first week of May. So, <laughs> I um, say so I just want to say thank you to and, and by the way, if you do pre-order, um, get in touch with me. I can give you a shout out on the show. And if you pre-order with the link that I'll put in the show notes um, to a really lovely independent bookshop called Mr B's Emporium in Bath, um, I'll sign all those copies and before they send them out so you can get a signed first edition pre-ordered and then they'll send it out and they do worldwide shipping and i will say if they do get more than 100 pre-orders before uh the book comes out then not only that will that be wonderful for them because they're an independent bookstore and it's great for them to get sales because we want to um help them because indie booksellers are the sort of like they're kind of like the jedi of uh, of uh of book of, of the whole publishing industry right they're just like this kind of like tiny sort of barely surviving race of um noble super warriors who um have beat back the darkness uh using 
their powers of book recommendations so i love them to bits i just want to say thank you to um francois for thank you for pre-ordering uh thank you to thank you to beth who get in touch to say that she pre-ordered three copies of the ice house from mr b's because another guy had said he'd pre-ordered two she says gauntlet throne who will pre-order four well <laughs> i i don't know i don't know the answer is anyone um of course i would like to see um it escalate in a way that enriches me personally uh, I can't pretend that anyone should have a particularly huge motivation. But of course, if you have a group of friends that you'd like to pre-order for, then um, it would be wonderful to see more of you pre-ordering. But please don't feel... <laughs> I, I can't in good conscience um, ramp that up. Oh, thank you to my Nan, by the way, who said that she's ordered one. That's very kind of you, Nan. Um, but anyway... And that's enough of that just to just to say every time that one of you does that then you are supporting the podcast you're supporting me my entire income is made from being an author so i truly truly appreciate it because you're allowing me to keep doing what i love doing which is writing stories and helping other people write stories and making both of those things hopefully good right that's enough blather from me i hope you're having a lovely week um I'll probably do a writing ramble at some stage, one of the episodes where I just don't re- do not do a script and just have a chat because uh, it's been too long and I'd love to uh, love to say hello to you and uh, just 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 check in with you. OK, so without further ado, um, this is my chat with the author Jess Kidd. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did, which is lots. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a podcast about writing about stories, about everybody who makes stories and makes stories possible and reads stories and loves stories or quite loves stories or enjoys writing stories or would like to enjoy writing stories or sometimes enjoys reading stories. All of you, you're welcome. And if you don't fit into any of those categories, you're welcome too. Today, um, I'm thrilled, delighted and genuinely, genuinely excited. And I I must admit, for some reason, a tiny bit intimidated, but I'm sure I'll get over that um, to be talking to the author, Jess Kidd. How are you? <laughs> I'm well, thank you very much, Tim. Yeah, and, and I have actually eat, just eaten scrambled eggs in honour of the honours. So I feel <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm ready now. So, uh, yeah, brilliant today. How are you? I'm, yeah, I'm good. I'm excited. I always, I think one of the, I think I'm figuring out the reason I sometimes come into these conversations a little bit, feeling a bit, a combination of excited and a little bit nervous is because very often... It's, I think sometimes people think it's affected and I'm going, oh, I'm so excited, but I am. And I think it's often because I'm just like in the middle of the author's imaginary world. And it's a bit like, it's a, this is going to sound like such a weird way to open an interview, but it's a bit like meeting God, right? Because I've been in this world that you've created, totally invested in all these characters, and then I get to see the person who's like, built an entire world and it's kind of a bit I feel I just that's that's the energy that I'm starting today with is I'm slightly in awe of you um and I'm like oh my goodness 
Well, vice versa. I'm just thinking, I, I'm in your world as well. And I'm just thinking of the two world mashup. How peculiar <laughs> and insane would that be? So, yeah, it's, it's kind of odd, isn't it? I mean, I feel like that when I've met um, writers, especially, um, I mean, I, I've recently met uh, Roddy Doyle and I went into kind of fangirl experience and I was like, oh, I can't speak. I don't know what to say. And it's, it's always that kind of idea that you think maybe a writer doesn't sit in their dressing gown and drink tea and you know they, they have some kind of divine inspiration there's not just a lot of swearing and shuffling so uh, it's, it's the reality of the writer isn't it <laughs> as opposed to the sort of narrative voice do you do you still find yourself kind of um nervous around writers I don't know because I'm quite I'm quite like an uh socially awkward person when I'm out and about um that manifests in lots of different ways but like have you do you feel like you're I, I I remember sort of who was it who said um, described it as sort of like waiting for to be um, for the, a fairy to come along and boink you on the head with the magic wand of legitimacy. Do you feel do you feel like you're one of the authors now? Do you feel you're part of that crowd or do you still feel that you're kind of on the outside of it? I sort of feel both really I mean I've been writing ever since I can remember um, my sister taught me to read with Mills and Boone books and I started writing very very young and so I'd always wanted to write and uh, that was a massive ambition and, and uh, an idea in my mind but at the same time I've done so many jobs to kind of facilitate my strange dropout life that I just kind of think well maybe it's like I'm trying my hand at this and then I'm going to go on to some other crazy profession at some point so uh, so, so yeah I, I suppose that thing but I, I do feel most writerly when I'm actually writing if that makes sense when I've actually got some words down on a page then I think that anxiety kind of is a bit alleviated by the actual function of, of you know doing a couple of chapters here and there but uh, but but the rest of the time it's it is a bit odd really and uh, I mean the strangest thing is obviously seeing like your name on a book and knowing that your aunts are up and down the country rearranging bookshelves <laughs> in bookshops <laughs> and who is this just kid person so um, but but it's it's great because I as I, I get to meet a lot of other writers and readers as well which is magnificent. Can you? I, I'm, you said that your sister taught you to read with Mills and Boone books. Can you just take us into that scene for a second? Because I, it, it's one of those things that sometimes I'll just say something, not exactly like that, but I'll nod like I understand what that would be because I don't want to seem... But how did that How did that go down? Because how how old were you and what was going on? Well, I was very, very small, and 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 my my sister really liked these Mills and Boons, which are kind of uh, romance fiction books, and they have all different. I mean, they're often to kind of quite a format, and and so I was started off with the kind of learn how to read books, and then graduated onto those. And I just, I think I just wanted to impress her. Um, I mean, she wanted to be a teacher, I wanted to impress her. So um, one of my earliest memories is reading the book upside down and turning my head. Uh, <laughs> I, I follow the line and I remember that vaguely and uh, so so I think I was just kind of reading ev everything that I could get hold of and I, I think that's the case in a lot of writers backstories but they start off as readers and uh, whether they're shy children or a little bit outsiders or or they just want to escape into an imaginary world but I mean the funny thing is with the with the Mills and Moon obviously a romance and uh, 
and I do have a bit of love interest in the novels, but it's not always, uh, you know, it's not always uh, sort of plain sailing, really, in, in the kind of romances I write. Do you, do you remember any of the beat? Do you remember? Did you retain any of the sort of beats of the um, classic kind of Mills and Boone uh, format, or is the content kind of like? Is it more the scenario around the the reading, the ritual, rather than the books themselves? I think it could have been anything. I think it was just the fact that I was propped up next to her with the book and I was doing what she was doing. So uh, I think it was just that. But I think maybe it's in there somewhere and it's about to come out. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, I mean, I do have the, as I said, the love interest bit in, in all, all the books comes out. But I mean, most of, oddly, most of the books I well, stories are right. Friendship is a more kind of central component of them, really. So, yeah, maybe one day it will all come out, the kind of the, that heritage of Mills and Boone. <laughs> but it's so it's so lovely, that story, that, that part of it is this place of combination of aspiration, but deep, deep comfort. Because I, I think when you kind of get down to it a lot, for a lot of people, books are either a refuge or they were in some way represented a kind of form of of home. You said like a lot of children were kind of like who who uh, a lot of people who become writers in some way were outsiders or needed. Where did would you think you were like that growing up? Was there you know were you seeking refuge or in the books or? I think in I mean in a way I was I was fairly shy, which surprises a lot of people because I'm kind of a bit of a mixture of a sudden extrovert. Mm. <laughs> no warning, and I I do enjoy I do enjoy talking to and communicating. But I I think as a child I was quite shy, and I wanted actually to be a playwright, and um, and I was just intrigued by the whole kind of storytelling process as well. But I think I was more of an observer, so I'd be kind of looking at what people were doing and listening and I and and actually as a, even now I'm incredibly nosy person I will um I mean that's one of my kind of writing tips although I hate writing tips and is just listening to other people's conversations as much as possible so I have actually done things like not got off the bus at my bus stop because I've been listening to people having conversation on the bus so I think it, it sort of came from from that point of view of that idea that a book is kind of a portal into another world entirely um somebody else's world and somebody else's experience that i probably could have access to without reading the book so so i, I suppose very early on i felt there was quite a magical element to books and yeah i mean i think you've got kind of escapism but it's where are you escaping into it might be a complete fantasy land or it might be a a work that's very real and, and gritty but I think it's all about trying on a different experience and a different way of life. Can you remember any of those aside from the the, the Mills and Booneses can you remember any of those kind of like stories can you remember like uh like the kind that a story that that changed things for you when you read it? I mean, I think there were quite a few books like that, but when I, I mean, apart from Mills and Boone, I often used to listen to stories being told, and my my mum was a fantastic um, storyteller, so she would make up a lot of stories, and so I kind of came from that tradition as well. Um, but I, I think there were always books along the line that kind of stretched the fabric 
of reality a little bit and I was very attracted to those so um Alice in Wonderland and but all di- all different all different stories would appeal for me for for different reasons and I remember getting into Angela Carter at school who continued to be a massive influence on potentially you know why I, why I wanted to write and I was just um I was just really surprised by the use of language and the kind of way that that um this kind of fantastic element would erupt in, into the story and that kind of permission to be a little bit baroque with your use of words and so so I suppose they're all different influences and I read quite widely but I'd also liked poetry um, from quite early on um, and the, I mean the other big influence and I, I think it probably shows in the first book in himself um, was with Dylan Thomas and Under Milk Wood because I remember listening to that, my, my, my late father had the collection of um, recordings, records, and um, and I was just overwhelmed by the, the way the language worked in that. So I think the things that I was attracted to definitely had that kind of stretching the plausible, but also that kind of beauty and creativity in language too. What? Uh, so can you talk a bit about, since you've sort of brought up uh himself um i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about i know we're like skipping out some stages (laughs) um to to get there but i just think since you've mentioned it i i I was wondering if you could had you written any himself was your debut is that right yeah that's right himself was the debut and i had written um lots of short stories um but i was i was very fortunate i was a single mum and working various jobs and i was very fortunate to get a bursary to study um for an ma and i wanted to teach creative writing in the prison service in particular and so um as i was doing the ma which was focused on teaching writing i, I started writing these stories there were three interlinked stories and um and and this village emerged and the protagonist emerged and so I thought oh this is interesting I'd really like to to go further into this and then when I finished my master's uh, again I was very fortunate in getting funding to do a PhD which I wouldn't have been able to done otherwise and so with that I was looking at cross-genre writing so I was looking at magic realism or magical realism and crime and how to splice them and look at mystery and so sort of himself grew out of all of those strange experiments that I was doing and so I was very fortunate in the way that I had um, a lot of people who would read my work and so I ended up with this kind of huge experimental novel and then thought I could maybe send this out somewhere would anyone be interested in it Um, but it was a interesting way into starting to write longer fiction. I because I I, I I mean I I sort of don't <laughs> I've himself is could you describe because uh, I'm I I've got I've got lots of feelings about him himself positive ones the re, that's why I'm holding back because I don't want to I don't want to just gush about it I don't want to sound any more of a uh, I don't I don't want to make uh, I don't want to sound like a lovey um, but I was wondering if you could sort of describe it to people who haven't uh, read it what it's about 
Yeah, certainly. Well, himself follows the fortunes of Mahoney, who is um, a sort of lovable rogue and a bit of a charmer. And um, he was found at the steps of a Dublin orphanage um, with, a, with a note. Um, and many years later, he um, finds out that his mother didn't abandon him as he thought, but that she disappeared under mysterious circumstances. So he decides to return to the village of his birth to find out what really happens. So he arrives in this um, little speck of a place on the west coast of Ireland, um, where his kind of good looks and his his, um, his sort of strange, he's a stranger from out of town, start to cause a stir. And then it's only when a character called Mrs. Cooley takes him under her wing that they decide to unearth the sort of reasons for his mother's disappearance. And so it's sort of, it's quite hard because it crosses into a few different genres, but it's sort of a mystery and, well, I, I, can't, I can't really summarise it. There's so many different elements, but, it, it, but it's, it's quite sort of twisted and hopefully quite funny. And um, I, I very much wanted to take the reader on a, a bit of a roller coaster ride with that one. I like, because I, I must, I want to say to you now, just to like get this off my chest, that I have, and I hope it doesn't sound like I'm, it's contrived or this is in somehow manufactured, um, but I, I have the kind of, from having read that, I have the kind of sort of mild resentment towards you that people have towards, like, say, their therapist who they've confessed a load of things to and been through a load of emotions with and now feel quite vulnerable in front of. Because, like, anyone listening, there's, like, some elements that, for me, I'd characterise as supernatural or fantasy. Um... And um, and it is funny, but it's also frequently utterly brutal, like utterly not in a uh, not in a manipulative or kind of grim dark way, but just in a kind of horribly matter of fact visceral way, and I. Had uh, had a couple of moments reading it where I just looked up at an empty room and said, "Fuck!" <laughs> like, "Oh my god, whoa!" So like, th- yeah, there's like there's light and dark, but my god, <laughs> I I kind of I was like, "Why? Why have I let? Why am I letting you do this to me?" <laughs> it was. I mean, that was the difficulty, really, of of. of- balancing all these elements because it starts with a with a terrible crime and and this is very much the fuse that that lights that entire story and so it was really important I mean I, very early on I, I got kind of a, the the idea of this crime and I couldn't get it out of my mind and so I had to write it and it wasn't um, it was a difficult I think writing any violence is always a, a, a difficult sort of call really because you don't want it to be gratuitous and it's 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 very important to, to how the, the plot unravels and I, I think it was also this kind of shackling of, um, of of this kind of brutality and violence and trying to find a language and also quite try and find a, a bit of a poetic language to describe it but also bring the comedy elements into it so so again I, I felt like it was really important um, 
to be honest with with the reader and say, say that this is the starting point and everything from here. So this is <laughs> the prologue is quite violent, but I, I kind of feel that once the reader gets through that, they're introduced to the world and and perhaps there is an element of pulling the rug out from under people, but I think it's it's also very true to to the way that the characters are living and feeling in the book. Yeah, I would. So I don't. I don't want to make people uh, sort of get the impression because I, just because I don't think it's true that it's like some kind of um, grim, harrowing slog. Um, but your protagonist, like his reality, is one of seeing some like pretty nasty things juxtaposed against some really like funny, sort of like closely observed kind of characters with they're kind of like real small sort of like vulnerabilities and kind of people who you know the little the little relationships with between people inside a, a small community which I thought was I think the language is so amazing I, I don't want to sort of uh, gush about it too much but I it's so I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about you said you said that you you used the words um I might be paraphrasing slightly but you said I had to write when I got this act of violence in my mind I had to write about it would you mind expanding on that a little bit because to some people they'll they'll them that makes sense to me because I you know it's that kind of thing has happened to me but I was wondering if you could expand on it a little bit yeah certainly I mean it starts with an act of violence towards um a girl called Orla who um who is sort of a, essentially a troublemaker in the town and and she's she's had an infant and she's decided she wants to keep this child in a time where that could have been potentially quite tricky and so she's she's swimming against um all, all of town opinion basically and so um i think it came from a point of my experiences as a single mother you know what if i had to what if this and so it came from a series of questions I think that way but I think as you said as you touched on with the idea that it is about these relationships between um, people in a small town and the kind of pressure cooker environment of this I mean it's it's a fictional town on the west coast of Ireland and 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 the plot moves from the kind of uh, late 40s into the into the 70s when Mahoney returns to find out exactly what's happened to to his mother um, but I mean, I think the central idea is well, you've got this kind of brutality behind it, um, but there is also the comedy. But at the core of it, I think there is a sense of um, of friendship and and finding a place and finding an identity, which was you know, why we why I think the name fits really because um, it, it's it's the, the way that this character moves from a quite quite a fractured place um, to discover his own history yeah i would when i've a few quite a few of the writers i've spoken to when they talk about books that they've written um they come to realize it's really interesting what you were saying there about it being the kind of it's sparking from a series of what ifs a lot of writers i've spoken to talk about you know the the thing that drives them through writing a novel because let's face it like writing an entire novel it's often quite a like a ball ache is a lot of work <laughs> and one of the things that keeps them going is having some kind of it being an answer to some kind of question that they were asking or some problem that they were grappling with or something they were 
that was troubling them. Do you think that's what what we, is that? What do you think you were? Was there something you were exploring, like personally, you were kind of like grappling with in this? I think there were a few things. I mean, I, I think it was character, very character led. Because as I say, I mean, um, I, I first got the 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 village itself, Mulderig, through. Um, these three short stories and, and Mahani appeared as well. And so I knew I wanted to look around this place and I was sort of navigating it with my imagination. <laughs> and so I, I just really wanted to go back there. I felt compelled to investigate. And of course, then I also had this, this, this story of, of, of this uh, murdered young girl. So there were lots of, um, lots of reasons why I then wanted to write it. But I think I... I very much, I mean, going back to Alice in Wonderland, for instance, I very much feel like when you get a character, it's almost, you feel like you have to follow them down the rabbit hole wherever that goes and, um, and, and look, at, look at where their lives might lead. And so you end up with that kind of frustrating thing, I think that a lot of writers talk about, that you invent a character and then it starts behaving completely differently and it doesn't really fit the plan that, that you had for it. Um, but I mean, I think there are lots of things I wanted to do. Obviously, I wanted to to create a very immersive world, and to play with language, and to and to bring all of these different sort of facets together in a, a really satisfying read for the reader, and and very much take them on a journey. Really, I think I've tried to do that with everything I write. I'm always asking what questions are, are, is the reader going to have for me, and trying to answer them as I go along. Um, and that's that's really that actually brings us beautifully into process because I was going to say like if you ask if you could reflect a little bit on the process of uh, writing um, your first book because I guess is this is the one where you haven't done it before and I, I'm really interested to know if then as you've written whether your processes for writing novels has stayed the same whether you've had to adapt it for each book how that how that that's gone so when you realized you were writing a novel did you have a big plan where you just kind of following behind him metaphorically with a notebook watching what he did did you know where it was going like i'd be really interested to know how it came together and when you got to the point and you went ah oh, i think this is a thing now like that i can i can show to a to someone in the industry you know that i can send out to other people and say do you want to have a look at this yeah, I, I think it has changed a lot. I mean, I definitely think with a lot of himself, um, I, I ended up actually being relieved that I had a kind of crime or mystery structure to it because I was meandering all over the place. And there were lots of plot lines that we stripped out because it was it was too long and um, it was a massive cast. And of course, I was also dealing with, because Mahani can see the dead and as his mother did before them, um, but the dead that I wanted to bring into the novel had sort of their own backstories, and that I really wanted to give a sense of a life lived with with the with the dead characters. They weren't just ghosts that you see out of the corner of your eye. And so, um, so I was dealing with like two sets of cast, really, in effect, like this chorus that comes and heckles Mahoney. Um, and so, so there was an element of of really sort of widening up with that and then I've found that since writing himself I've kind of perhaps maybe thought about planning it a little bit more mm. um, <laughs> from the beginning but I've liked I mean the second book I kept with like a mystery element and the third book now 
I have because I, I I feel like um there's a lot of fun to be had with that structure because also the reader comes to it with certain expectations that there's going to be a crime and there's going to be some kind of investigation and there might be a solution and so when you're writing with using a bit of supernatural or magic realism there's a lot that you can do to sort of stretch that so I was finding with the criminal and with the investigation in, in himself there were lots of other permissible areas they could use they could use contacting the dead or they could you know there were lots of other elements that they could bring in potentially but I do think the process has changed shifted very slightly I mean I, I felt I did when I set out to write the first book I knew I could write a short story um, but I didn't know that I could write sustain a longer piece of fiction but I think it, it is carried hopefully by the compelling plot if, if, if you've got a story that you really need to tell and as you say you know with the ball leg of actually committing to a longer piece of fiction that's got to sustain you but also the characters and you fall a bit in love with the characters even when they're obnoxious like in the second book in um, the hoarder um mr flood who's the the hoarder of the title like i kind of set out to write a really unlikable character and ended up really liking him so so there are still things that that you kind of um that you can't plan for i think and that's a that's a brilliant aspect of, of writing um that that you think you've got a plan and then you actually start deviating and it's nothing nothing like you thought it would be at the end can you can you talk a bit about just give us a little pricey of um uh, your second novel the, the hoarder and i and then i want to just drill down into this character of mr flood and your and and your changed sort of like attitude towards him because that's really really interesting to me and speaks to a couple of things that people have been saying to me today actually so i'm really really interested in it um can you just for people who haven't read it give a a, a quick idea of, of what it's about yeah certainly well it follows the fortunes of maud drennan who's um a care worker and she's been tasked with um with supporting mr flood who has a terrible reputation he's seen off lots of other care workers and he lives alone in his this filthy once grand mansion in uh, in west london and as maud appears to, to to help him sift through the rubbish of decades this unsolved mystery comes to light and it's um, a disappeared uh, schoolgirl and so maud decides to dig deeper and in doing so she starts to unearth um the demons of her own traumatic past so it's it's with this book it was a very much smaller cast of characters um but there were some similarities too again there was a mystery plot and the idea that you know the setting had to be really immersive too um so so really with, with that um i think what i was looking for is i don't know i mean i wrote that book in the wake of my father's death so it was very much linked into exploring sort of grief and and loss and sort of things things like that but there were elements that I wanted to keep so with this I um, went back and had another look at this kind of intergenerational friendship between um, a much older character and a younger character so with the first book with himself we have Mahoney and Mrs Crawley and in this one we have Maud um, and the older man uh, Mr Flood and so um, what starts off as this sort of professional relationship then turns into this really uneasy friendship between the two characters and and I think in a way it was about sort of unlocking the secrets of this 
crazy gothic house, but also each of the characters unlocking each other, really. Yeah, it's um, like this is going to sound like a this is going to sound like a fatuous comparison and it's really not meant to be but it's the it's the sort of it's a sort of like the dynamic of a kind of non-romantic version of like beauty and the beast right like that yeah. but we're like fly tip rubbish when you said um you said it was like in the wake of um a bereavement and processing the grief of losing your father was that something conscious did you sit down and go right like how can I explore this through this novel or is that something that since writing it you've looked back and gone oh that's what I was writing about I think it was a bit of both because I mean I'd always been interested in um, hoarding disorder and what what led people never to 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 throw things away because I'm sort of the opposite end of the scale I, I I really I'm quite frightened by clutter and I've got to that stage in my life where people visit and I'm trying to give them things to take away I think you know <laughs> remember my granny like take this radio take this and so uh, so I think um, for me it was kind of almost quite frightening to, to go there but when I realized there was this link between um, hoarding disorder and, and loss and and sort of really just the point I mean I think in, in the book there's this line about he just can't th- he's, he's lost so much without giving the plot away that he can't bear to throw anything else away and so um, I was I was very drawn to that and also the mechanisms we use for for dealing with with you know grief and loss and trauma because I think I mean Maud for instance she's she's had a difficult um, background and so she she's a bit, bit more of a kind of a imaginative approach to, uh, to to life. So she's she's followed by a sort of gaggle of um, Catholic saints who <laughs> who chip in and advise her. And then Renata, her, um, her landlady, um, she she won't go outside. So they're all characters that are kind of struggling to come to terms with things um, in in different ways, really. Can we? And, and uh, uh, this is the question I was going to ask. Brilliant. Um, you said that your, you said that there was a slight change in your process from himself to the hoarder, and I just wanted to ask, did you, what, you implied that it was you did a bit more planning with the hoarder, and I was just wondering what planning you did, and did it work? <laughs> Oh, well, the planning I did, I mean, I did do a fair bit of research as, as well, or oh, both books, but all books. And uh, But I think I, I went out and talked to people who had experienced and, and were in recovery or, or seeking treatment for hoarding disorder, first of all. Um, but I also kind of enjoyed, I mean, there's a scene where we have a, a psychic, um, a spiritualist meeting. So I went along to, to that kind of thing. And so I was kind of getting immersed in, in the world a bit. Did, that's so cool. I think so many people don't realise that you're allowed to go and <laughs> yeah. look at the thing that you're writing about and that the world exists and you're allowed to... It's such a... What can I, What was it like going to, to... Did you? Did people there know that you were a writer or...? Well, I kind of turned up and I thought, you know, I, I was I'm keeping quite an open mind because I knew, obviously, that this, this is where the book was, was heading... 
And um, and so, yeah, I turned up and I thought, well, I know loads of dead people. They're bound, they're bound to all be coming through for me. And I was, like, quite startled. The woman next to me was getting all the dead people. They were all appearing for her, but I got no one. But I was, it was just, uh, it was what was very interesting, really, was the idea of, I think, which goes through all the, the, the things that I write, was this connection between the land of the dead and the land of the living and, and how and how that story somehow continues, but in a different format. And so I think that's what I was sort of trying to get to. And I think when I, when I went to places like that, I got stories about people and their lives and the people that they'd lost and their lives. And it sort of chimed with something I've always felt really strongly, that if, you, that if I write a dead character, they have to have a sense that they've lived if that makes sense, even though they're fictional. But I have they have to feel as real to me as the living characters would. Because because they because fundamentally they they are or were. That's I think the thing, right? Is that they we kind of think sometimes we kind of like treat the past or history as like a sort of funny wall wallpaper or kind of like background to our lives. But those people's lives were as real to them and as scary as that to them and as immediate to them and as full of tastes and touches and urges and all that kind of like vitality of being a human being alive in the moment um, as ours. And it's a really difficult thing for us as human beings to actually not just intellectually know, but really like appreciate and it sounds to me like that's what you're that's an important touchstone for you is being able to say these these people lived and don't forget them yeah I I I think it, it very much is like that I mean another kind of main kind of strand to to the hoarder is it is about memory and and in a way the kind of the hoard of 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 rubbish and and Mr Flood starts off as a collector but then something happens that means that he he just can't throw anything out um but but as Maud is sifting through the objects in the house these these kind of memories come up the house starts throwing up clues um as as to what's happened in the past and so and I suppose in a way that's the fascination and that's the fascination as well carrying on to 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 when you lose someone is how do you how do you honor their memory how do you continue to remember them and and is their story necessarily finished because I kind of feel that that in these books it, it goes on really can you talk a bit about um, things in jars, which is out, which is out this, which is out, it's out, out really soon from the time of. Um, I know, I don't know if my, my saying it's out really soon makes you feel excited or whether that's like the worst thing to say. And you're like, no, no, there, there must be more time before it. Oh, there comes must out. be more time. Yeah, it's out in April. No, it's. Um, I'm really excited about. I mean, there are dead people in this one as well. I mean, it's. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm very excited by, by this. I think we after the hoarder, which is um, obviously with a with a smaller kind of cast of characters I've, I've gone bigger again and so I suppose in a way it's more akin to himself but it but it follows um a character called Bridie Devine who's um who's a female detective in in Victorian London and she's sort of reeling at, when we meet her she's reeling from her last case you know her reputation's in tatters and she's been given this incredible puzzle um, the child of, of, of um, a baronet called Sir Berwick has been kidnapped 
uh, but this child is no ordinary child and the child is not supposed to exist. And so we follow Bridie as she fights to recover Christabel, is the little girl's name, and into this um, world of, of fanatical anatomists and crooked surgeons and these devious showmen. So it's really a case of another, hopefully, very immersive story um, that's going to lead the reader into a different world entirely. Can you t- talk a bit about the, the, the genesis of of this? Because it... it... <laughs> It sounds like it's really difficult for me. I guess like I'm going, gosh, it sounds really, really thrilling. And then also I'm just from a crowd point of view, I'm like, oh, my gosh, you must have had to do so much work to make this feel real to you before you could even bring it to the audience. So I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how it came about and what about it caught you that was like, I'm going to have to do the work to bring this to life because I need to know. Well, I think I think it were a few things. I mean, one of one of the comments that I had from readers after um, the hoarder was that they really liked this kind of immersive quality, and they would follow Maud into this cluttered house, and and um, and one reader even said I had to take a bath after I read this read this book, which I thought yay. And uh, but I think with with things in jars, I wanted a similar sort of thing, and I'd loved. Um, Perfume, story of murderer by Patrick Susskind, and that idea of this kind of bringing to life um, th- this different time, but not as history as being there as, as as vividly as possible. And so there are a couple of things that really linked me into wanting to write about this time. I mean, it's not quite of the period, but there was a case of Charles Byrne, who was the Irish giant, and he was he was collected by John Hunter. Um, so Charles Byrne was a, was a sort of curiosity in London in the 1780s and um, the, the famous John Hunter who was collecting specimens um, anatomists in Yorkshire um, he, he sort of stole the body or, or had the body stolen and, and it then since then it had been on, on display in the Hunterian Museum so I was kind of really interested in this idea of a kind of curiosity and um, ownership of, of your own body when you're dead. So that was one of the things that led me in. Um, and also, I mean, moving on to my period, it's set in 1863, where Victorians just loved collecting things. And and so I started getting sort of immersed in that world. And But then, I mean, we have also um, Irish characters uh, with the protagonist, Bridie, and, and another character called um, Ruby Doyle. And so I wanted to bring that kind of Irish and London strand in, and some Irish myth. And so I was reading um, reading a lot about this myth of Mero, which is a kind of super violent mermaid, really. And so I thought, well, how can I get this in? And and it just felt like as I was, again, it was like down the rabbit hole, um, as I was reading about the time period, and then I knew that I wanted Bridie to have a kind of a background where she wanted to practice medicine and, and and looking at early forensics and so so I think it was just like I was tapping into all different worlds and so coupled with with this um, I had this idea quite early on of having like a Victorian A team so so Bridie wouldn't be alone in her investigations and so so she's she's helped by um by another character yeah Ruby Doyle who's um a dead bare knuckle fighter who appears to her and part of the puzzle of the, the the book is working out how she knows him and so I don't want to give any more away on that strand 
Oh my god! Like you're just saying everything you say about saying about it is like they're just such. I just feel like my brain lighting up with excitement. But as soon as you're like, okay, like there's some, there's Victoriana, there's um, there's super super violent mermaid, Victorian a a team, ghost of a bare knuckle boxer, just like yes <laughs> that's so co- like are you con- are you conscious of it's something that doesn't get talked about that much around literary fiction in fact before i go there i just want to ask something you i introduced the term supernatural or fantasy um but whenever you've talked talked about your books you've used the term to me at least you've used the term magical realism i wondered how you see your own work whether you place it in a genre at all when you talk about it and what genre you are comfortable with it being placed in because I don't want to be sort of imposing lenses or sort of um, taxonomies upon it Um, I'd be interested to know what your thoughts on that are well it's a tricky one because I mean this was what I was looking at with the PhD and it was first of all defining magical magical realism and then you get into this kind of 10 years later you go I don't know <laughs> no one knows and uh, I think Terry Pratchett said it was just a push way of writing fantasy or something like that I mean I might be completely wrong there but which is wonderful um but I I think um I think what I what I was writing it before I kind of knew what I was doing in in that way and I, there is a danger of labels and kind of um, putting things into pigeonholes but the the way I see it is the the supernatural that erupts in the worlds that I write about um, is happening in our own recognizable world it's not a parallel world another world of fantasy it's it's our real world but with a kind of weirdness to it and I think also the narrator in this kind of way of writing is is not making any comment this is kind of normal stuff it's very normal for dead people to shuffle on from the wings and have a chat and it's very normal for things to fly about and so so I think that's an element really within within that kind of genre but the other thing I kind of really relate to is this idea that it's about um, linking in with folklore and storytelling and a kind of oral tradition and I think this goes back to how I was as a child with my mother telling a lot of stories and kind of bringing out folklore and bringing out myth and all the rest of it so so I think when you're writing magic realism there's kind of an element that you're telling a bit of a tall tale and then the reader is going okay I'm gonna buy into this and so it's it's a, like a very pleasant experience I think to write it and it makes it makes a kind of fabric of reality stretchier. And I think when you're trying to deal with things like, you know, how do you move on when you've lost someone you love and what what is happening to the, your own universe when it's reconstructed when you've lost someone, it's, it kind of is helpful not to have too many boundaries, I think. So I've got um, a sort of small series of, of questions that if it's okay, I'm going to ask you because there's so much that I'm fascinated by in that that I just want to kind of, uh, pick your brains um what kind of stories was your mum telling you you kind of alluded to kind of saying that she was making stuff up but also that it had like folklore elements can you give us a picture of what those stories sounded like yeah I mean I, I suppose there was an element where you have kind of magical beings or you would have like dead the dead characters I mean often 
I think there was an element of talking about people who who died as as if they were slightly real, <laughs> and so you weren't ever quite sure. And then I think also when I when I then I mean she's just very very inventive in terms of of um, the kind of characters and the situations. And I think a lot of them were about, you know, probably had a kind of slightly fairy tale element to them. And maybe they were a bit cautionary as well. <laughs> like, if you do, if you go into the forest, this kind of shit's gonna happen. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I think, um, and then of course, when I, then I picked up on people like Angela Carter, then you kind of see that link, you know, with the fairy tale and then going back to that. and. And um, and also put it, putting these elements into into the books as well. And I think storytelling becomes quite central. It certainly is in in all three books. There's um, there's episodes when a character will tell a story, and it has a kind of message inside it as well. And so it's it becomes almost like a not quite a commodity, but a way of kind of opening up that character and then developing the plot. And so I I just enjoy it really. I think. I think it's fun to kind of watch your own characters then tell a different story. Can you, you've talked about the PH, your PhD. Was your PhD in magical realism? Yeah, I mean, it's in creative writing studies. So it was looking at magical realism and crime fiction and the kind of way that you could splice them together and which, which elements... Um, were similar and which which weren't and so it was again like you you, you with crime you, you've got the reader's expectation to have a you know have the crime have the investigation and have everything sort of more or less tied up at the end and with magical realism it's like well anything could happen and we're not going to really explain it and things don't necessarily move in the right order and um and so I suppose it was taking how how could you sort of involve both elements in one book, and I think that's what I was attempting to do with himself in 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 the way that you you have dead characters as part of the plot, but obviously you've got to find a way of not letting them give away the whole investigation. Say, so, well, actually, I saw the murder and this happened. So it was kind of finding a way to to weave these two kind of different genres together, really. Yeah, I, I think like it's really it's a really interesting question to me, and um, y- your knowledge of magical realism is is far in excess of mine. So I don't. Want, I, it's just it's interesting to me because I come to your work, and I'm like, and, and maybe it's like slightly I've got like a kind of slightly slight kind of like genre colonialism that I always want to kind of claim everything that's good for the for the kingdom of fantasy and basically just like extend our borders over it and say and this shall be ours and this shall be ours and these and 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 and, and just kind of annex things and make things protectorates and um sort of like possessions and stuff and colonies but for me it's like oh this is this is low this is low fantasy it's set in our world and it has fantastical elements but i do think that the that the the definitions are porous and actually there's no there's no hard borders between them like in my head like magical realism is uh something where the the magic is magical realism is like where weirdness is kind of like a metaphor on steroids you know like people <laughs> yeah. kind of like oh i love that can i steal that <laughs> yeah so like the the distinction that i think china mieva was was making is like if you're reading magical realism and there's a dragon it might be like a metaphor for the horrors of war 
if you're reading fantasy, it might also be a metaphor for the horrors, horrors of war, but it's also just like a massive dragon as well. <laughs> and I, I, I kind of, I don't know, like for me, like yours seems to fall, for me at least, uh, in the second category. In that like the dead and and these weird things are sort of metaphors for things. They do sort of like become analogous or ways of expressing the profoundly weird alienating reality bending experience of grief or loss or the alienation of time passing but they're also they're also there like as far as we know like i think you know readers can kind of talk themselves out of them or say oh this character's mad or whatever you can find but but they're all, it's also just like a ghost right and that that, that to me is that, that that that's how i engage with it it's really interesting i'm absolutely fascinated by it as a kind of it does seem to me be right on the border yeah yeah it's 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 really is it's a puzzle really because i think also like i don't know there's like a lot of um i i suppose there was a point where that kind of terminology fell out of popularity when you had that massive uh, sort of popularity of the magical realist writers and all the rest of it but i mean i, I think of it as like a kind of technique in a way that you use the kind of the, the the sort of solidity of realism to build up to build up the kind of magical element so that when you describe something you make it as real as and tangible as possible like the dragon in the room as with every single scale picked out in the kind of realistic way and maybe he's like scratching his armpit so hmm. so there's kind of like a, a mundanity to the magic as well so which is really interesting it's like how can I how can I make this as real and immersive and vivid and as much of an experience as possible for the reader? And that's always the thing that I, I mean, what, whatever kind of genre it then slips into, whether you know with the hoarder we have a bit of gothic and then there's family drama. It's always like what what is the best tool available to tell this story and honour the characters as much as I can. It sounds to to me from what you're saying that you feel like these things like are, are less from at least when you're writing it it's less useful for you to think of them as genres and more useful for you to think of them as strategies or ways of seeing yeah i suppose yeah ways of seeing and and also the kind of nuts and bolts of putting um a story together because that's always that's always the kind of thing at the forefront of my mind is is how how can I how can I just make this as 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 compelling as possible really? So I suppose it's that yeah techniques and 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 ways of of kind of getting something across when it's potentially quite a difficult subject to be writing about. Do you enjoy writing? Oh. I do. I mean, I think it's a bit of both. On a good writing day, I'm like, oh yeah, this is this is brilliant. And um, but when it when it's you know on the on the days where it's maybe not going to plan or you don't know what you're doing, um, yeah, less so. But I think I just feel very very fortunate to be to be doing something that I've always wanted to do really ever since I can I can remember, and. Um, and I think also when I do go out away from the desk, I mean, most of the time I'm kind of immersed in my own strange world of shuffling and dressing gowns and tea drinking. And then when I go out and start talking to readers, then it you know it feels like it's utterly worthwhile having that kind of struggle 
if it connects with with people in some way How, uh, are there any what ways have you found to kind of how do you get yourself unstuck when you're in one of those sort of um, valleys of the novel writing process when you're like, oh, I don't really know where I'm going when you're feeling doubts or lost or just bummed out or when everything you, you, you're you writing looks like crap. How, what ways have you found to sort of get out of that and back into a sort of state of that kind of more excited exploratory uh, realm of possibilities I mean I, I suppose just recognising it is one step because I mean I think you can just sort of bash yourself over the head with this thing that's not working and uh, when you just recognise okay that's not working maybe I try a different approach um, I mean I do think there's several things just going out for a walk or or just, just taking a break away or doing the hoovering or anything like that and sometimes that's enough time away for my subconscious brain to work out this, the solution of it but I think it's also about the kind of I suppose in my case is just discipline of setting down to do it and um, I think with writing there's I think it's similar in some respects to acting is that you can sometimes have a little bit of a performance anxiety about it and um, you know how, how do I how do I you know, how do I do this how do I make this and and the blank page and all the rest of it but I think there are ways in and it's tricking your brain into maybe picking up a bit of editing on something that's going well or doing a bit of research and then before you know it you're kind of immersed in it again and off you go um, and understanding that there will be kind of weather fronts there'll be sunny days where you're skipping around thinking Oh, this is the best thing I've ever written and then it's sort of terrible doldrums as well and it's just knowing that that is part of the process I think. I think that's so useful for people to hear because when you're in the dull and also I imagine that something I'd like to ask you is because like I think people imagine and when I say people um, I'm using them as a synonym for me um, imagine that you'd like write your first novel and then you have been through that you've proven that a novel came out of it at the end and then you'll sort of have inoculated yourself against ever feeling that again because you'll go, well, I know I can do it now. Um, and then it kind of, and then you, and then you, and then it, it hasn't gone away. So I was, I was wondering, does, I mean, do those things still, uh, uh, you know, how do you, do you, how do you, is that, did you find that that like was because a lot of people find their second novel harder than the first was that true for you or well I mean I was I was fortunate enough to meet lots of writers um uh, it was just before himself went out and I, I met a lot of writers at a party and they were, they were all saying oh the second novel and all this so I thought I really get my head down and I've been planning you know planning what I was going to write and all the rest of it so I thought I'm just going to blast through this as quickly as possible because I was really fearful of uh, of the second novel angst um and and i suppose in a way you know i was fortunate that i'd, I'd got a lot of ground covered so i i think it's probably harder if a, a book comes out and then you know that it's going to be read um but i i think it, i mean for me it's more of a process of i get to a certain point and then obviously it's collaborative because your agent is looking at it, your editor's looking at it, the you know, all of the, the people, the publishers are looking at it. And so it becomes a team effort. And I think at that point it's it's you feel quite supported and you know that you're heading in the right direction. I suppose it's it's getting to that point where you've done the groundwork and you think, Okay, I've got something here that I can show to people. 
I think that that's wonderfully mature of you. I feel, <laughs> I feel other people come in and uh, my main sort of like I, I feel I tend to feel resentful. I'm like, why don't why don't you love me? Why don't you either say either say it's awful and I can throw it away and I don't have to work on it anymore, or say it's perfect and validate me? None of this. Don't pat, don't patronise me with this. I think it's really good, Tim. I think there's some work that needs to be done. I don't want to work on it anymore. I want to be... Fr- <laughs> I'm, I'm so, like, fragile in those initial emails sent out. I, I just like, oh, please just tell me I'm a good person. <laughs> you seem You seem remarkably healthy. Like, it feels like you don't wrap up your entire um, self-worth in your novel, I sound like astonished that you would do that. <laughs> like, like it sounds, sounds like you think you're a worthwhile human being outside the work you produce. <laughs> I do, and I'm there. Um, I, I suppose, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I, I trust that we're going to eventually find the best version. I think that's the thing that kind of keeps me awake at night is getting to the best version of that story and telling it in the best way and connecting as well, connecting with someone um so uh, so that that does that does sometimes worry me but i do i do sort of feel that um it's never quite it's never quite finished is it i mean even when it's sort of published you're sitting there you're like, oh i could change that yeah. i mean the, the the days leading up to the final kind of deadline and everything i mean you could obsess over a semicolon and then you're like what even is a semicolon i don't even know what it is anymore i was gonna say it was sounding like if you hadn't said that i was gonna ask it sounds like not wanting to sort of draw too many parallels between you and your characters, but you've got a kind of like Mr. Flood-esque sort of like, as your book gets towards the end of its process, that terror of kind of letting, letting go? Letting go. Well, I mean, I I must admit, I I think by that point, it's such a team effort that it feels team, you know, whatever the book. and, And so, but then I think the other thing that's really helpful and it's always helped me a lot is to have, different projects on the go at the same time so that you can slip out of that world if you need to if you're getting really stuck then you go back to writing a short story or you go back um to to writing something else and so that it feels like there is life after that piece of work and so it's 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 not everything is wrapped up in in that in that one idea so and it somehow helps especially if you're writing things that have a very different um so for instance I was kind of working on an AI story at the same time as looking at Victorian London and so it it is weird because they're totally different worlds but you're still dealing with character and plot and and um emotions and and, and all of the other things and the complexities of being human and all all these strains so you end up having kind of strange parallels but they also help you to understand when you take I mean I think this is part of um always the sadness of being a writer is that you can't read as a reader even if you take a step back from your I'm quite objective but you can never you can never absolutely know if it's working until you start talking to people and they say yeah this is all right or no I'd do this differently or whatever yeah I think it's that's so I mean it's re- I think I just want to underline for people listening your advice about work on multiple things. For ages, I was terrified of doing it because I was worried it was a form of, um, like, displacement activity that I would be... It was a form of procrastination. Uh, and that was just me being very sort of puritanical and Spartan and a bit sort of self-loathing. <laughs> and and last year, eventually, people... I, I You know, I was just saying to people, is it okay for me to work on lots of different things? And, and 
loads of people came back and said, yeah, so I was like, that's enough validation for me. And I did it. And actually, it's just, you're absolutely right. It make, I felt so much freer. And I actually wrote much more because I was able to follow those things down rabbit holes. And because it's a book, like, it's kept on the paper. It's not in your head. So you can leave it for six months if you follow something else and come back to it. And it will still be there. And your ability to work on it will be all the fresher for um, for having had got a bit of distance from it. And not feeling like your entire, the fate of you and your family and your ability to keep a roof over your head and feed yourself is on this one story going right. Yeah, yeah, because that, that just kind of, because I think, I, I don't know, I mean, certainly for me, I have to access some area of sort of playfulness and a bit, yeah, like a kind of free free thinking um, sort of state of mind, really, and, and sort of discovery and, and all the rest. And you can't do that if you're kind of terrified in the corner as to like, I can't, you know, I can't tackle this blank page. It's, it's not going to lead you to it, really, I suppose. Yeah, I've, I think I think you're absolutely right. And it for me, it's just been a while kind of getting there. You know, I'm a really, really anxious person. Um, and it's just taken me a while to sort of teach myself to play again. But it's worth it. And I think for people listening who go, I want to I want to access that that area of play. I would just sort of say to them as a kind of addendum to what you're saying, that it is always it is always there. Like, I think it's something it's the first thing that we develop as children and i think as we and it, and it's actually been really helpful to me with my daughter now who's two just starting to tell her own stories um and they are they are wild but um but really just my engaging with how intrinsically enjoyable it is to tell stories um when you're not constantly stopping to evaluate evaluate whether they'll pass other people's approval um is wonderful yeah, and, and what genre they're in as well. So and, unless you're saying, well, that could be in this kind of genre, or that one is, you know, you're, you're steering towards magic realism there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't mean to sort of sound like, I don't mean to like infect you with my genre <laughs> No, because no, I have genre anxiety as well. I think that's the thing, isn't it? And and that's part of the interesting thing of, of writers is that, um, you know, there is there is that kind of trait as well that you want to worry at something and you want to have an answer and you want to have clear-cut things. But then that's kind of against the kind of reality that there is no real clear-cut and it is really hard to put things into into categories and all the rest. So it's kind of that tension between those two instincts, really, isn't it? I think, to with me, it's probably more of a kind of insecurity and feeling of resentment if I'm completely <laughs> frank I think it's me coming to people and c- turning up at sort of literary soirees I don't think I've ever been to a literary I might have been to one literary soiree and I, I think I snuck into that and and just like giving people the side eye and going you all ri-, and, and just going you all look down on me because I write fantasy I've never been loved in I've never been loved <laughs> like I I, I I think I genuinely oh, I genuinely have that kind of that that kind of feeling and it may also just be you know writing you know the publishing world being at largely upper middle class uh milieu me being sort of lower middle class uh guy from a small village that you kind of you turn up and you go I think I just always feel like it's not quite clever enough for people. And I, I, I think I and not all the time, but I think that is a, a sort of subconscious thing in my, the back of my head that makes me that makes me super, super sort of 
aware of genre and seeing it everywhere and seeing people laying down demarcations in a way that I, I'm not sure many readers actually experience as a practical experience of them reading books. Yeah, I, I, I do know exactly what you mean, because I, I feel, I suppose, I, I sort of come from a similar kind of background and and there is also this kind of, this slight departure between the reality of you as a person and I think what I actually lead really boring life and I don't really do anything even remotely interesting and then but then all this sort of weird shit is erupting and, <laughs> and so how can how can this how can this be so um so I suppose yeah that there is that kind of element of like how are you qualified to write about this this and this but but I think that's part of the joy I suppose it's a similar thing as acting is that you can try on these different voices and different personas and and be somebody else through the book um and, and that's really entertaining and, and going back to your little one and the storytelling it's just absolutely if it comes from that kind of place then that's I think that's the best thing it's just a, a love of putting something together and taking someone on a journey really isn't it I um I think absolutely and I think sometimes you know we if we're a bit sort of sometimes we can depending on the the kind of views we've got of ourselves sometimes we can feel a bit undeserving of being allowed to do that you know just being doing doing something because we enjoy it or doing something for the pleasure of it it can be scary and you can sort of reach out for uh, some kind of permission or artistic justification and but you're right that the magic of stories the real the real stuff where they come alive is where someone confidently takes you by the hand and says once upon a time yes that's it <laughs> have you got any i sort of, i know sort of people start sometimes bleeding from the eyes when uh, the for term writing tips uh, is is brought up but um have you got any sort of some a couple of things that you've learned that you think might help people who are listening who are working on their books whether it be some sort of like quick hack in terms of process something that you do to kind of get yourself in the mindset something a little protocol that you run through when you're redrafting your work something you a checklist that you ask yourself to make it better anything like that that you think might possibly be useful to somebody who's like working on their own fiction um, I mean, I, I suppose it's probably nothing that everyone hasn't heard before, but I mean, one of the things that I do, I have a terrible, terrible memory. And so I take a notebook everywhere with me and I don't, I'm not um, actually disciplined in one way enough to keep a, a sort of a daily thing, but I do pretty much writing it all the time because I don't tell myself I have to write. It. I mean, I do sort of, but I take it everywhere and then I record things that I hear and, and sort of jot my ideas down and then I use that because so often I've had an idea and I, it's just gone I, I've forgotten it and so so that's really important to me I mean one of the things that I find really helps me is to read my work aloud um, especially when I get stuck and listen to the way that I read it and so I find that you know I'm adding words or I'm taking words out or I'm stumbling over certain words that um, that that has an impact I mean I think that's that further down the line when I'm sort of trying to polish something and get it get it to kind of a state where it's more finished um but I, I suppose I don't know I mean the, the things that really help for me is just to kind of um if I'm leading myself back to the, after a disastrous day or something is that I just think okay well 
I'll just have to start with something I can do, which is picking up a, a piece of editing or, or something maybe that I think is working a little bit more or a, a little bit of research and then just letting that, as, as I said earlier, just, you know, bring yourself back into it that way, I think. Because I, th I think like you're, it was really interesting you talking about Dil Dylan Thomas at the beginning because I really feel reading your writing that it, and, I, and, I, and you know, please permit me a small amount of sort of sycophancy. I, I genuinely, sincerely meant, but like that you, you managed to thread the needle of writing stuff that is prose that is simultaneously like rich but but very punchy i'm so i was just reading it going oh my god not a word wasted that's awesome like it's not you manage to have texture without being flowery and i was just reading it going oh this is so this is like really nerd really writing nerdy stuff that i was going oh this is very robust um I, I, do you think that comes do you and i just want to ask um because I d didn't want to sort of let this pass, but do you write like a first draft where you just hammer through for shape and carrot and discovery, right? And then come back and work on the language? Or are you one of these people who incrementally works through and um, every morning when you open the laptop, spend the first sort of 10 minutes, half an hour redrafting the previous day just to bring the voice up to snuff? Or what's your kind of process for getting that? Because your language feels fantastic and i know that that must come from a lot of hard work secretly what, what's it's like what you do isn't it is, is having um i mean i think your language is beautiful with your kind of poetic quality and um I, I mean i i don't i think um i think what i try and do is yeah go, go back in to get pick up the voice as you say which is exactly right but i don't polish as i go along because i i think i've met a lot of people um struggling with that so they feel like everything has to be perfect before they move on and um i, I just feel like you you kind of need just to get it out in the first draft and i think you could give yourself permission just to kind of put this document together in any way or shape that you can really I, I think also it's like a process um when i was at college i learned live drawing and so it was a case of that like, you go around a figure and you would kind of get it in and then you would go back and put the detail in and so but you get the hole in and then you keep going around and so you bring it all to the same kind of level at, simultaneously if that makes sense it does absolutely yeah andrew andrew cowan the um, author i had on uh last year i remember him telling me a similar thing that he really struggled with perfectionism and he was you know he had procrastination and real like writing anxiety issues for years and he said that the problem he'd always had in life drawing was that he would draw a very fastidiously shaded ear before he would go on to write it drawing the rest sketching out the rest of the body and then he couldn't do it because he couldn't get the proportions right and it wasn't good enough you know he had to get that one thing fastidiously right so i can i think that's i, I really understand that it's 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 such a I almost feel like, again, it's like a, a need to not feel like a fraud in case somebody suddenly bursts into your house and checks you're working. Well, yeah, I mean, I'd be slightly horrified if, if, if they did that at some of the drafts that I've got on the go. But but I do think it's the perfectionism is that kind of 
well, it, it squashes that kind of childlike playfulness and experiment, you know, feeling like you can experiment, feeling like you can test things. And so if you think there is a right and a wrong, that kind of automatically makes you a little bit frozen, I think, um, in, in terms of what you're choosing choosing to do. Because I, I think it is a kind of a, a sense of, of discovery in it. And also, I mean, un until you kind of get towards the end of a draft, there is still the potential to move scenes, to take things out, to change plot strands all the way along. So I try and keep it as, as fluid in that sense as possible. And if I do have to cut something, I try and think of like saving it in another file where I could potentially reuse it as a short story or I could divert it somewhere else so that you don't feel like anything's wasted. And then that leaves you freer again to think, oh, I don't want to... You know, it's not a problem to, to cut something you think, oh, I've spent six weeks on that. It's not a problem because you think, okay, I could potentially reuse it. So it's all those little ways of tricking yourself into sitting down at the, at the blank screen. <laughs> That's awesome. That's a really, really good and practical piece of advice, like putting something out and putting something into a new file and saving it with a different name just so you can find it that you could reuse and magpie for something else later on. Because I think... Even if you don't use it, the psychological effect of going, don't worry, it's not lost. We're just trying this without it. Um, and then in very, in well, 95% of the time, that cut is the right thing to do, isn't it? And then you go, ah, oh, and you feel, and you feel lighter and you, <laughs> you, 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 it's like, it's like this burden's been lifted and the story is better and you're like, wow. Yeah, and but it's often there is like a tiny toddler in me that says, no, I like this bit. I'm not cutting this for anything. And sometimes I have like develop a rational sort of attachment to certain bits. They're like security blankets and I'm like, no, I can't get rid of them. So I, I do think it sort of helps in that way. Oh, yeah. No, I, I know exactly what you mean. I, 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 I. I reintroduced puns so late in the I know I, I this is going to go out this is going by the time this um one goes out it'll be too late for anyone to stop me but I'm just finishing marking the page proofs up for the the um the ice house and I am reintroducing a pun that was that was cruelly that was cruelly squashed um during the editing process and it's going back in and it all have gone to print, and 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 they're doing it from it's it's from that is an intervention that they've made for my benefit and for the benefit of the authors, and I cannot I can't let it I can't let it not happen, and that's just that's my sickness that's my sickness. <laughs> is it in the current proof? Is the pun in there? Have I got? I think I haven't checked actually. Um, I haven't checked whether they. I feel like the copy editor got to it and and, and was like, you can't. You can't possibly mean this. There's much like like no no reasonable agent, no, no reasonable person would have put this in, um, and 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 on my and, and on my behalf took it out, and I didn't notice. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is. It's in the proof, and it's um and it was copy edited out. So um, I'm putting it back in. Um, because I'm awful uh, and self-indulgent, but I'm not. No, I don't believe in self-indulgence. Actually, I think like we, it's our books, and there's not really much point writing unless we do the things that bring us joy. Um, I and and can I just ask to sort of round things off? And thank you so much for being on the show and asking all my answering all my impertinent questions, Jess, because it's been 
so thrilling and really, really enlightening to hear all your thoughts on writing and your work. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It's, it's brilliant. I really enjoyed your podcast and, and your work. So it's uh, it's great. It's lovely. Thank you. I just wanted to ask um, you to, to, to finish um, what you're working on at the moment or how and at least how is it going? Oh, well, I'm currently I've just finished um, revising a draft of my first children's book. Um, and so and I'm really excited about that. So I'm, I'm sure I'll be doing a bit more polishing of that one. And I'm also working on a few things for television as well, some treatments and things like that. And um, a little novella as well, which I haven't, I've written a lot of long short stories, but I haven't written a novella before. And, and the fourth novel, novel four, so I'm staring down the barrel of number four. <laughs> so I'm in that place at the moment where I kind of got it planned out, but I'm, I'm, I'm ready for deviations. <laughs> oh, so you, so have you started the draft of, of, of novel four or are you like on the precipice about to do the sort of base jump? Well, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm kind of in that fairground ride, you know, where they pause at the top so you get maximum fear. I'm, I'm kind of, I mean, I've started like making little kind of, you know, inroads into it. And so, and I've got some notes here and there that I, that I kind of build. I mean, when I start off writing something, I think of it as a framework document, like the bones of the story. And then I think of where I can go back and kind of and enrich it and build it up and, and layer on the kind of detail and all the rest of it. So so I've, cu- I've kind of got the whole story and the characters and I'm getting their voices through. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of getting there, really. I'm trying not to feel too much of the fear. <laughs> awesome. That's so cool. Well, Jess, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. And I will put links in um, everyone listening. If you'd like to uh, check out one or all of um, Jess's books, I'll put links to them all in the show notes and on my website, timclairpoet.co.uk, so you can click and get them through there. Or, of course, the ideal thing would be go to your local bricks and mortar bookshop if you're able to get to one and um, order them in there. And, um, also, everyone listening, uh, just to say, I hope you have a really wonderful writing week and I hope this has been useful to you. Have a lovely week. <laughs>